Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Telly for History of 304. Uh, today we're going to be talking about gangster rap. Uh, gangster rap is the other rap style of rap music that really got controversial, uh, really turned rap music from something that was you know, somewhat acceptable with like pop rap and things uh, to something that's seen as very dangerous. This was the dangerous type of rap music. Uh, last class we talked about... Uh, the so-called pornography rap of a group like the Two Live Crew, which was seen as very controversial and you know something to, that got a parental advisory warning, uh, mainly for its sexuality. This next one, though, got a parental advisory notice for violence, but it also became seen as prophetic. In fact, we're kind of going to start at the end of this one. We're going to start at the end of this one. If you go over one slide, you are going to see a scene of the L.A. riots. Uh, these are the largest riots in U.S. history. Uh, they occurred in Los Angeles, California. Uh, they began in April, very late April of 1992. Uh, actually, I think it was April 29th, 1992. Uh, with basically when a trial ended that announced the acquittal of four police officers for the beating of Rodney King, a black motorist. Uh, a year prior, Rodney King had taken police on a high street pursuit. Um... After he was stopped, after they were able to stop his vehicle, after it was about a 30-minute to an hour high-speed pursuit, uh, the police officers hogtied him, and they were beating him with clubs. Unbeknownst to the police officers, uh, somebody was recording this. Somebody was recording this. And that clip, I mean, I was alive during this time period, that clip got shown on TV all the time, the, the clip of the police officers beating Rodney King. Uh, Rodney King did not die because of this treatment. However, he did suffer some damage uh, very, very seriously injured afterwards. This was seen as a textbook case of police brutality. Uh, the four police officers, there were five police officers in charge in total. Four, however, were the ones doing the beating. Uh, this would not have been an issue had this not been for the videotape. Um, really inflamed old tensions amongst African-American residents in Los Angeles complaining about the police treatment. Complaining about the police treatment, uh, police brutality, uh, targeting of African Americans by police officers. Now, something you do need to know about this trial before we get into it is that they're able to get a change of venue. They're able to get a change of venue. Originally, it was supposed to be in L.A. County, like in the city of Los Angeles. We'll talk about the geography of Los Angeles in a second. However, they were able to... Um, the defense attorneys were able to get a change of venue. They were able to get a change of venue to Simi Valley, uh, Simi Valley is a much wider area. It's a, it's a much more affluent area. Uh, for instance, that's like where Ronald Reagan has his presidential library. It's a much more suburban part of Los Angeles. Um, basically, after several days of deliberation, uh, the jury finally acquitted the officers. They, they acquitted um, the officers of use of excessive force and also assault. Now, this acquittal sent shockwaves throughout the Los Angeles community, particularly in the uh, South Central area, particularly places like Koreatown, which is part of South Central, and basically large-scale riots exist. Large-scale riots come up for several days. There are lots of riots, uh, about a billion dollars worth of damage, about 55 people were killed. Uh, ultimately, the um, National Guard was called in by President Bush. They're called in by President Bush. And basically it shows that maybe things aren't going so great in Los Angeles. Maybe there's tensions. Now what's interesting is in the light of all these riots, 
a group like N.W.A. was seen as prophetic. Gangster rap, a type of music that was decried as being overly violent, overly, you know, uh, bad for African Americans, bad for everybody, you know, music that should not be listened to anybody, is now being viewed as prophetic. Because years before, years before, in their in, re, in their first release, Straight Outta Compton, the group N.W.A. talked about how bad things are in Los Angeles and how the police are exasperating the issue. Uh, in their song, F the Police, <laughs> they don't say F. Uh, likewise, the group N.W.A. stands for N with Attitude. I'm, I'm not going to say the N-word, but y'all know the F-word and the N-word. Uh, in, in the song F the Police, basically they talk about how the cops are corrupt, how the cops are unjustly targeting African Americans, things like that. Likewise, in Straight Outta Compton, it really focuses upon uh, how gritty and raw Compton is. Remember, this group is now seen as prophetic. That's the word I want you to think about. Prophetic. Beforehand, it was just, you know, release. It was seen as entertainment. Dangerous entertainment. Uh, sometimes NWA was called the most dangerous group in the world, the world's most dangerous group. And now they're being called prophets. They're being said they predicted the L.A. riots. They were talking about the situation in Los Angeles. Now, where does this all start? Well, now that you know where this ends with Los Angeles and fire, let's go back to the origins of gangster rap. Uh, gangster rap is a lot different than its earlier predecessors. Um, even something like uh, even something like Two Live Crew, which is a contemporary of it, um, gangster rap, it, it, it's quite different. Um, you know, early hip hop and even things like uh, you know Two Live Crew, it's mainly about partying. It's mainly about partying, mainly about a good time. I mean, Two Live Crew, even though their lyrics are profane and they're very very sexual, uh, it's usually about having a, a good time sexually. If that makes sense, it's not anything overly violent, not anything overly um, complaining. Uh, same things in early rap music with songs like The Message, uh, when they talk about, you know, social commentary. Uh, it, it, you know, they talk about the ghetto, they talk about the violence. Uh, generally, they're not taught, they're not even generally, they're not perpetrating the violence. They're not the ones perpetrating the violence. Um, you know, they're, they're not talking about being the perpetrators of drugs. They're, they're the recipients of drugs. They're the recipients of violence. It's nothing to, um, to be proud of, nothing to really be championed. Now, the earliest gangster rap is really credited to two guys. Uh, the first one is Schooly D. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of Schooly D. Uh, Schooly D puts out a song in 1985 called Parkside Killers. I think I have a clip of that right there. Uh, Parkside Killers, it's the first quote-unquote gangster rap song. Uh, basically, the, the rapper, Schooly D, uh, he's from Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia is fairly close to New York. Uh, it's fairly close to New York. It does have its own hip-hop vibe, though, a little bit different. Uh, somebody like the Fresh Prince, uh, Will Smith, is from Philadelphia. You do get Philadelphia rap sometimes. It's nowhere near as big as a place like Los Angeles will be later on, or New York uh, for most of hip-hop's history, but it still does exist. Um, in PSK, Parkside Killers, basically, Schooly D talks about you know perpetrating crimes, going out, being a killer, very much in the, in the, uh, the same vein as older... Dolomite stories, pimp narratives, kind of these bad man narratives, uh, basically like, you know, I'm such a bad dude doing this. Uh, something very highly precedented within the African-American community, but something that hadn't really been done in hip-hop before. Remember, up until this point, and yes, I know we talked about uh, the pornography rap of Two Life Crew last week, but this is contemporary. Uh, rap generally talked about partying, and if it did talk about social commentary, it's something like The Message, 
where they talk about how like the ghetto is a place of dysfunction, and they're not you know they're the recipients of violence and drugs, not the perpetrators. Uh, it, this is not a very big record. Uh, PSK Parkside Killers is not a very big record. It's not something that that gets very large. It's not something that really goes anywhere. Uh, however, one person who does hear it is Ice T. Uh, Ice T. If you go over one slide, you're going to see Ice T. His birth name is Tracy Morrow. Uh, Tracy Morrow was born in New York, and New York, New Jersey. You know, in the New York in the New York Metro. Um, basically, he, he lives he lives you know in the New York Metro. Uh, later on, he moves to the suburbs. Uh, his parents die when he's fairly young. His uh, parents die when he's fairly young. Uh, kind of a sad story. His parents die fairly young. Uh, ultimately, he does end up moving to Los Angeles to be with his aunt. He's like uh, around early teenage years in this time period. Uh, this is in the mid-1970s where he, is, he moves to Los Angeles. Uh, his aunt lives in a fairly middle-class part of Los Angeles, in a fairly middle-class part of Los Angeles. Um... You know, uh, he starts hearing some more music, starts going to high school. Um, fairly a clean-cut kid in this time period. Fairly a clean-cut kid. Uh, he doesn't really, like, do drugs. He doesn't, you know, drink, smoke. Uh, there are gang members at his school. I mean, he is going to a public school in Los Angeles in this time period. We'll talk about that in a second. He doesn't really do too much of them. He doesn't really do too much of them. Uh, he does, however, um, starts hearing rap, uh, primarily with Crip Rhymes. Uh, Crip Rhymes is a different style of rhyming than rap music. Uh, Crip Rhymes, uh, that from, comes from the gang, the Crips. We'll talk about them in a second. Uh, Crip Rhymes are different. It, it's, it's, it's a type of jive talking that's not quite hip-hop, but it is rhyming. Uh, much more in line with the dozens or pimp narratives. Much more in line, particularly with the dozens. Uh, where basically you talk about how bad of a person you are, talk about you're a bad man. Uh, how you do sorts of violent stuff. Uh, not really a musical thing. Not really a musical thing. Uh, he does graduate. Um, he graduates high school. Tries to get a place of his own. Has a kid fairly early on. Uh, the thing I do want you to know in this time period is that basically, to make ends meet, he decides to join the military. Uh, he joins the army for a stint. He joins the army for the stint. He is, he's stationed in different places. Uh, mainly mainly uh, around the country, mainly around the country. Um, he's in Hawaii for quite a while, and this is when he hears rap music for the first time. The first time he hears Gangst Gang Gangster's Delight, uh, it's in the late 70s, early 80s, he's, he's um, in the military. He hears Rapper's Delight, he's like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, they, they, they're rapping, they're, uh, they're kind of doing the pimp narrative thing with like his, his Crip Rhymes things, except they're set to a beat. So he's much more interested in it. Uh, also around this time, he gets a, a discharge. Uh, he gets his discharge around this time period. He gets his discharge, moves back to Los Angeles, uh, tries to get into DJing and party promotion. Really tries to get into DJing, get into party promotion. We talked about that with Russell Simmons. He's not really doing too much rhyming, uh, not doing too much uh, rapping himself. That does change in time. Uh, he, he thinks, hey, you know what, maybe I can um, start talking about, like, a gangster life and using sort of the pimp narratives, uh, using the sort of, like, crypt talk I used to do. Maybe we can do some music over it. 
Uh, he's not too much of a, of a gangster by any stretch. He's never really affiliated with a gang. Uh, he does do a few, like, robberies, supposedly. Uh, but he's mainly trying to keep his nose clean. Uh, it's around this time where he happens to hear uh, PSK, Parkside Killers by Schooly D. Uh, basically, while he's like listening to different music, he's like, wow, this is pretty interesting. Uh, this guy's really doing something with the beat, really doing something with talking about uh, you know, being a gangsta, being somebody who's a bad man, perpetrating violence. And so the next year, 1986, he releases Six in the Morning. Uh, Six in the Morning is hailed as the first real gangster rap song. I know that uh, PSK, Parkside Killers, is probably the first. That is a very small window of people that heard it. A lot more people heard uh, Six in the Morning. Now, you'll see that Six in the Morning is there. You can click right there and listen to Six in the Morning. Um, it's a narrative. It's very much a narrative. It talks about, you know, Ice-T waking up in the morning. Cops are after him. He has to grab his gun. Um, very matter-of-factually, he's not really exaggerating too much, supposedly. I mean, he's, he's definitely telling a pimp narrative, but it's supposedly nothing that's, like, overly exaggerated. Uh, it's not really fantasiful. It's a very much... It, it's done to be very gritty, to seem somewhat realistic, to seem what somewhat realistic, uh, be something that really sounds like it's um, a realistic idea. It's a realistic idea, something that one could theoretically do. The the beat itself is also very uh, minimalist. It's very minimalist, and it's uh, you know it's kind of a stripped down sound akin to some of the stuff Def Jam is doing. Now, this is really hailed as the first gangster rap song. This is the one that really gets popular around the country. Uh, Ice-T is the one who really influences most of the later rap guys. Uh, most of the later rap guys really get influenced by Ice-T. Uh, if you're talking about anything later with gangster rap, you're mainly talking about people influenced by Ice-T. Uh, even a group like N.W.A. Easy, he made it, well, he's dead now, but Easy may not admit it, but uh, he was definitely influenced by Six in the Morning. Six in the Morning was a real warning shot, really changes the way that uh, people view gangster rap as a genre, really introduces most people to gangster rap. Real staying power, real staying power here. And it really is the first time that Los Angeles has emerged as a center of rap music. You know, you'd had things like New York for a while. Uh, Philadelphia has it for a little bit. Last week we talked about how Miami becomes even a big scene for it. Uh, as we go on in the semester, we're talking about other locales and their version of rap music. But for the most part, Los Angeles is seen as synonymous with gangster rap. Um, and that has a lot to do with Los Angeles itself. If you go over one slide, we're going to talk about why Los Angeles. Why there are some things that are going on in Los Angeles, which make it ground zero for gangster rap. And we're going to have to go back into history a little bit. Uh, generally, I wait... <laughs> Later on in the lecture to talk about like kind of the historical and sociological, well not sociological, but societal relations to these groups. I think, however, to understand gangster rap, you really need to understand the dynamics of Los Angeles. So prior to World War II, if you, if you look at the slide, this is a shot of Los Angeles prior to World War II. Uh, prior to World War II, Los Angeles does not have a very large African-American population. It does have a fairly large Hispanic population because of the proximity to Mexico and it's in the Southwest. Uh, there are not too many people who are African-American in Los Angeles prior to World War II. Uh, the reason why African-Americans come to Los Angeles during World War II is because of wartime manufacturing. 
their Navy shipyards, their other um, defense industries based around Los Angeles. They have a huge need for workers. Uh, they're calling in African Americans. This is a second Great Migration. Remember, the original Great Migration um, was basically during World War One, where African Americans moved primarily from the South um, and to a rural and a Southern rural environment. Sorry, that's my dog just shaking. Uh, they moved to places of the North and become primarily urban. Now, the second Great Migration, you could call it, the World War II Great Migration for African Americans, uh, is to places on the West Coast. Uh, cities like uh, Seattle, cities like Portland, uh, their African American population grows tenfold. They have way more African Americans living there. Uh, likewise, Los Angeles really grows um, in this time period because of wartime manufacturing. Now, Los Angeles in this time period, it's, it's still a you know, before this influx of people come in, and it's not just African-Americans coming in for World War II. Um, a lot of people come to California during the Great Depression. There's the idea that there's jobs there. Uh, Los Angeles was a good-sized city before, like it, but it wasn't the biggest city in California, for instance. I mean, San Francisco was considerably bigger than uh, Los Angeles for most of its history. It's not until World War II where Los Angeles goes really big really, really quick. I'm not saying that Los Angeles was a small town before World War II. I'm just saying it was a significantly smaller town. Now, Los Angeles does not have Jim Crow-style segregation. Uh, Los Angeles does not have Jim Crow-style segregation. Uh, Jim Crow-style in the sense of that it's law. However, it is a city. Remember, cities across the United States, major metropolitan areas tend to have very informal segregation. They have segregation, but it's an informal set of segregation, primarily in neighborhoods and also in cities. Okay, something you really need to understand about Los Angeles. Something you really need to understand about Los Angeles. If you understand nothing else about Los Angeles, is Los Angeles is not just one city. The LA Metro is a bunch of different cities that spread over several different counties. I mean, there is an L.A. county, but there's other counties that are part of it. There's tons of little cities that make up this metropolitan area. You know, you have cities like Malibu, uh, Burbank, uh, the Inland Empire, West Covina, um, Watts, uh, tons of different cities that we would call Los Angeles. But theoretically, it's its own separate city, which has its own separate segregation. Theoretically, Certain people live in certain parts of Los Angeles. It's not anything official. It's not written in law, but it's something that is assumed. Uh, a comparison, maybe something closer to home, is a place like uh, New Orleans. You know, you have New Orleans. You know, you're from the New Orleans area, but if you get closer, you might be from, like, Kenner. You might be from Metairie. You might be from the West Bank. You might be from New Orleans East. Uh, I know some people from the North Shore say they're from New Orleans. They're not, but... You know, maybe you work in you work in New Orleans and you live on the North Shore, and it's all considered part of the New Orleans Metro. But if you zoom a little bit closer in, it's uh, you know it's a lot of different little cities. I, I know like the West Bank. There's tons of regions that I don't even know the names of. Like I think Algiers is one of them. The Chalmette, all that stuff all comes together. But if you're from outside the area, you just call it New Orleans. Los Angeles is like that on a much bigger scale. Uh, Los Angeles has way more of these little cities and neighborhoods, way more than uh, New Orleans, much bigger geographic area. 
Now, most African Americans who come to Los Angeles, who have migrated to Los Angeles, they're coming for jobs, they settle primarily in regions like Watts and South Central Los Angeles. Uh, Watts is probably the most famous one for the, in this time period, but also South Central. That's the southern central part of Los Angeles. It's actually in L.A. County. Uh, Watts is theoretically its own separate city. I believe it's also in L.A. County. Uh, South Central is theoretically part of uh, Los Angeles, the city, though. This gets complicated after a while. Uh, it is not close to the beach. Uh, this picture I have here is not Watts nor South Central. Uh, that is the pier. That is like Malibu. That is on the beach. Um, there are places in Los Angeles that it takes like an hour to drive from the beach. Like, if you get into the Inland Empire, uh, that is very much, you know, it's considered part of Los Angeles, but you are like an hour away from the beach, probably two hours in traffic. So a place like South Central, a place like Watts, is a very... Um, very working class community. It's nowhere near the beach. Uh, Middle-ish class, working class uh, in this time period, if we're talking like the 1940s, if we're talking about uh, World War II. That's what's going on in this time period. Now the thing is, with this influx of new individuals, uh, there are questions about policing. In particular, here is the police chief of Los Angeles. His name is William Parker, Willie Parker. Uh, he is a police chief of 1950. He's like, oh my gosh, we have all these African-Americans coming in here. You know, we're not used to African-Americans being in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I need to figure out a way to deal with African-Americans. I've never dealt with African-Americans before. And so he decides to put out a call for like, hey, who are people who have worked with African-Americans before? Uh, and the problem is the people he calls upon are like police officers from the South who are very much used to Jim Crow. Uh, a lot of his leadership, a lot of the people he calls in are people from the South. They are people who are, you know, he's like, oh, who are the people used to working with African-Americans, quote unquote? Police officers from the South who are used to Jim Crow and also aren't the greatest about like, you know, being racially sensitive. Uh, he does try to style his department like a southern police department. Uh, his police department is 100% white. Like, even though there is theoretically no Jim Crow laws in Los Angeles, he has a very segregated police department. Everybody in the police department is white in Los Angeles, even though a lot of the population isn't just black, but, like, Latino. Huge Latino population in Los Angeles. Doesn't matter. He wants a Southern-style police department because, quote-unquote, this is Willie Parker talking, uh, they're the ones who know how to keep African-Americans in line. Uh, he does desegregate it, quote-unquote, in 1962. Uh, there is outcry about basically, hey, you know, we need to have some sort of desegregation in the police department. Uh, by the time we get to the 60s, like 1962, he does quote-unquote desegregate it. Um, you do have black cops, but they don't get in positions of leadership. Generally, the black cops are just things like beat cops, you know, people walking the street. Uh, they're not the higher-end cops. They don't become detectives. Uh, for the longest time, detectives in Los Angeles was a very segregated practice. Uh, they definitely don't become chiefs. They don't become, like, the headquarters. And they don't get to decide policy. They're pretty much hailed, hey, do this sort of thing. Now, this is kind of a problem in the 60s with the Watts riots. 
1965, there is an issue in Watts. Watts is a it's a separate city in Los Angeles County. I believe it's in Los Angeles County, but it's a separate city from Los Angeles that is primarily African American. It's a very working class city. Uh, it starts out with a police stop gone bad. White cops pull over black drivers. Uh, people get upset about it. It ends up in a riot. It's actually, up until that point, it was the largest riot in U.S. history. And it's actually kind of seen as a counterpoint to the civil rights movement. Uh, those who don't support the civil rights movement is like, look at these African Americans. Can we give them rights? They're destroying their own neighborhood. Why are they destroying their own neighborhood? You know, why aren't they being more productive? That sort of thing. There's much older issues at play here. Uh, there's issues about policing. There's issue about economic opportunity. Because that's the other problem. The boom times of World War II are over. Like, the boom times for defense manufacturing are over. Now, a lot of these factories do convert over to a different type of manufacturing. However, things are starting to slow down somewhat in the 60s. Manufacturing is starting to slow down in the 60s, uh, but also becomes harder for African Americans to get these jobs uh, because the plants could be very favorable in hiring white persons. Uh, beforehand, a lot of the white persons were like theoretically at war. Uh, now these soldiers are coming back. They want these jobs. So you have this downturn. It's kind of slow. It's still okay in Los Angeles. It's still a fairly decent economy in the 60s. But things like the Watts riots show that there are problems going on. If you go over one more picture, you're going to see a pic another picture of the Watts riots, which have a lot of overlap with the 92 riots as well. Now, this really starts to fall apart in the 70s, like hard. Uh, that massive downturn in manufacturing begins. We talked about this when we talked about what's going on in the Bronx in this time period. Earlier on, we talked about early hip-hop. Uh, a lot of manufacturing jobs start going overseas. Why do they go overseas? Uh, communism. Long story. If you take my 45 class, I'll get much more into it. But just know the United States starts outsourcing a lot of different um, manufacturing uh, jobs, manufacturing factories. Uh, they start you know, lowering tariffs basically so other countries can start building stuff, and theoretically they won't go communist. Uh, this results in good jobs that didn't require an education going away. We talked about this in the Bronx, same thing. This idea that you know, th these were a good job, you, know, you could get a manufacturing job, you could show up, you could work, you could put you know, food on your table and pay for a house. That job is gone. With no place to go, the working parts of Los Angeles become underclass, quote-unquote. And you have a dynamic in Los Angeles, in the African-American communities, very similar to what's going on in the Bronx. Now, a difference between Los Angeles and New York has to do with just material culture. Uh, you'll hear me talk about this quite a bit, but just... The way people are living in a place like Los Angeles is very different than they're living in a place like New York. Uh, New York is all about like apartment complexes. Uh, the housing projects in New York um, are very much like high-rises, multi-story buildings, you know, apartment complexes. There's, uh, the weather is cold most of the year. Uh, transportation is generally done by um, public transit, trains, subways, things like that. Not very much of a car culture. Compare that to Los Angeles. Los Angeles, uh, not a lot of high-rises. In fact, very little, like, you know, big apartment complex high-rises in this time period. A lot more space, a lot more land. You have a much larger geographic area. 
Uh, the housing projects are generally, you know, um, single parent, single parent, single family homes, you know, detached houses. Very much more of a car culture. Los Angeles is a ginormous car culture. Um, there is public transit in Los Angeles. Nobody uses it. Everybody drives cars. The weather is a lot better. Um, it's you know nice weather year round. You've got the beach right there. You know, I know New York has uh, the ocean right there, but not really a beach. Yes, I have Coney Island in Brooklyn, but by and the Jersey Shore is not too far away. But like in Los Angeles, you have like real beaches, and that really impacts kind of the culture that comes up around their different genres of music. You know, if you listen to some of the early rap stuff from New York, it sounds very gritty. Very, you know, It's gritty. And even though the Los Angeles ones, the gangster rappers, are talking about much more violent things, sometimes the sound is a lot more uh, bright, a lot more airy. Don't know why I did that then, but <laughs> I was actually saving that for later. But you know what? I'll keep it here. Now, something else happens in the 70s. Uh, Los Angeles gets a new police chief. This new police chief is Daryl Gates. Uh, Daryl Gates is the father of the SWAT team. He's the father of the SWAT team, and uh, like Parker, he does not think too much of community policing. Uh, community policing is like where you have like cops who like actually live in the neighborhood where they, where they patrol. They patrol on foot. They, uh, the, the police like use resources to like you know encourage um, good interactions between the police and, and neighborhoods. You know the the police might do like a hamburger cookout or something where they this barbecue, hand out burgers, try to get people comforted with it. That's not what Daryl Gates did. Daryl Gates said basically the crime is getting so bad we need to have a very hard hand. Um, you know, giving hamburgers to the community is a waste of resources. Uh, you know, the people don't need our help or encouragement to, to do, follow the law. We need to spend that time on actually enforcing the law. And also with SWAT, it becomes a lot more militarized. Uh, the SWAT team is basically, you know, they use heavy heavy weapons, heavy heavy machinery, heavy equipment. Uh, much more militarized in this, in this idea. Much, much, much more militarized. This idea that you have a kind of a military organization within the police department, as opposed to something which is more about, like, keeping the peace through... You know, uh, walking around the neighborhood, things like that, uh, making the policeman a more of a, I don't want to say feared individual, but more fear than they were under community policing, shall we say? Uh, Gates is incredibly controversial. G- uh, both Gates and Parker are super controversial, um, even in their time period. They're super controversial. Uh, the idea that you know, why do you need a tank if you're a police department? You know, you know, if you're if you're being militaristic towards the the population, isn't this in turn going to make the population resent you? Uh, there's a lot of different protests about you know the the uh, tactics of police. Basically, is it overkill? Who are they targeting? Are they disproportionately uh, targeting African Americans? Now, because of the loss of job prospects, a lot of black youths look towards gangs. This happens in the Bronx. This most definitely happens in the Bronx. Uh, we talked about that quite a bit when we talked about early hip-hop. But unlike the New York gangs, which are mainly petty, I'm not saying anything bad about the New York gang kids. Like, you know, when you talk about you know, Russell Simmons when he was in the gang, he's like, yeah, we mainly just kind of ran around. You know, we might have done a little light robbery, you know, maybe bought some drugs or got drunk a couple times. Uh, these Los Angeles gangs tend to be a bit more violent. 
Uh, they tend to be a bit more violent, uh, a bit more um, aggressive. Now, is this because of the police forces, or do the police forces get more violent because of these gangs? Kind of a chicken and the egg thing, I'll say that. Uh, the first gang that comes around is the Crips. If you go one picture, you will see Crips. Uh, when we talked about you know, Ice-T and his Crip rhyming, that comes from the Crips. The Crips are the first big Los Angeles gang. Uh, theoretically, the Crips are a com- uh, kind of an amalgamation of different gangs of, of a different neighborhoods who want to protect themselves from other gangs. It's the first one that gets really, really big in Los Angeles. Uh, the next gang that gets really big, uh, basically it's formed to combat the Crips, is the Bloods. If you see right there, those are the early Bloods. Now, the Bloods and the Crips, theoretically, they, you know, they're, they're fighting everybody, but uh, they mainly fight each other, and it gets excessively violent. Uh, this is not helped by the introduction of crack. Uh, crack comes to Los Angeles in the early 80s. Uh, that is just a perfect storm because you already have a, a downturn in the economy. You have people feeling hopeless. Uh, very much akin to the opioid crisis nowadays, except it's contained pretty much to African-American communities. You have an overzealous police chief who's ready to militarize his police. New forms of drugs are making uh, selling drugs even easier. You also have a lot of uh, resentment of people like Koreans in African-American communities uh, because uh, Korean immigrants are coming into these communities and opening up stores, opening up storefronts, you know, various stores. Uh, and basically there's a lot of resentment between African-Americans who like live in these communities because they feel that they don't give a chance to own some of these businesses because of discrimination and things. However, these Korean immigrants are given the opportunity uh, which is what you're going to see in the 92 riots when it disproportionately affects Koreatown and also disproportionately affects Korean-owned businesses. Uh, whenever they're destroying things during the riots, it's primarily Korean-born businesses. So with the rise of gangster rap, with the rise of gangster rap, this, this is kind of the commentary on this, because Ice-T is kind of talking about this, but it gets blown out of the water with NWA. NWA comes together... I uh, remember that's um, in words with attitude. Um, comes really comes out swinging in 1988 with her first album, uh, Straight Outta Compton. Straight Outta Compton is released in 1988, and it is just a boom, a fire shot. Just puts the group on the map. puts really puts Los Angeles on the map. Very controversial, unlike any other rap record heard before. Uh, much grittier. Much less humorous and playful, because I mean, even even um, even Ice T can be a little humorous with this stuff. PSK was a little exaggerating. Um, when you listen to you know Straight Outta Compton, it's a much more aggressive, much less funny rap. Now, who all makes up NWA? Who all makes up NWA? Well, if you look at the picture right there, you're going to see the main guys. Uh, there's three dudes I really want you to know. The three most important members. Uh, on the bottom left, you got Ice Cube. Ice Cube is the original lyricist. He's the main lyricist for it. Uh, he is very much a... Um, my stars. What can I say about Ice Cube? Uh, real name, O'Shea Jackson. O'Shea Jackson, that's Ice Cube. Fairly early member of the group. Fairly early member of the group. Uh, he is the primary rhymer. He's a primary lyricist. Uh, he is originally from Los Angeles. He's originally from Compton, like pretty much everybody else. Uh, kind of gets a start, you know, hearing rap music. Um, you know, when, he, when he's a young guy, he, he's a, kind of a younger individual in this time period. 
Uh, actually gets a degree in drafting, like a degree in um, like architecture. Because he's like, hey, you know, maybe I won't, uh, maybe I won't do this full time. Uh, does get involved a little bit with Nation of Islam. Does get involved with a little bit of Nation of Islam. A uh, little part of, little part of that. So you do have not quite five percenters. A little bit of Nation of Islam mentality in a lot of his earlier stuff. Uh, as I said a million times, he is a primary lyricist. He is a primary lyricist. Um, so he's somebody important to know. Uh, another person, let's see, on the top left, so right above Ice Cube, that is Dr. Dre. That is Andre Young. Dr. Dre is going to be the guy who really connects the next couple weeks together. Uh, Dr. Dre is primarily a producer. Uh, remember, producers are incredibly important in rap music. They are incredibly important in rap music. Super important in rap music, like the most important in rap music. Uh, the beats he crafts are like nothing else. Nothing else in rap music of this time period sounds like Dr. Dre. Uh, he is putting out a lot of G-Funk stuff, uh, basically using old funk records as opposed to old disco records. Uh, very much, uh, his, his sound is very much synonymous with California rap in this time period. Uh, not quite a stripped down. He's using a lot of funk music, particularly when you get later on into like the chronic and things. We'll talk about the chronic next week. Uh, as, as I've mentioned too many times here, he is the producer, doesn't rap too much. He's a very important figure in rap music, particularly with the elevation of West Coast rap music. Uh, still very much in the picture. You know, he's got his headphones. Uh, however, the dude I really want you to know about is the guy in the middle. That is Easy E. Easy E is the real spiritual force behind NWA. He's the primary founder of the group. It's the one that's really synonymous with him. Easy e was born Eric Wright. He was born in Compton. Uh, drops out of school fairly young. Starts selling drugs. Um, very much a small-time, small-time, you know, drug dealer. Um, he does that for a while. Makes some good money. Um, whenever his cousin is killed, he decides, you know what? Let me start rapping. I need to get out of drug dealing. It's a little too dangerous. Uh, starts recording in his own garage. Makes a group called Ruthless. Uh, Ruthless, basically, you know, he starts this group called Ruthless Records. That is his record label. That is the one that um, NWA is signed with. That's the one that's synonymous with him. Now, also uh, important to this is Jerry Heller. Jerry, Jerry Heller is a music producer. He's a white man. Uh, he's the main like executive guy behind it, Jewish man. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about Jerry Heller. I'm sure you've seen the movie NWA, so you can know all about him. I'm not going to get too much into that part. Uh, also a very important individual. Uh, Arabian Night, MC Ren are the other guys part of NWA. They're not the most important. Easy E, however, is the main guy behind it. Uh, that is oh, also DJL's around too. Um, Easy E is the main force behind NWA. He's the main real guy behind it. He's, I, I don't know, it, it's hard to say because he does die fairly young, and the Duke group does have a lot of contention. However, Easy e when you're talking about early West Coast gangster rap music, you can't not talk about Easy e Easy e is the prototype, his look, the, the, the hat, the kind of the Jerry Carroll with the hat look. Very Easy e Very much synonymous with the gangster rap music. Now, as I said, their original album has a lot of interesting stuff on it. Uh, it's got Straight Outta Compton. It also has F the Police, uh, which likewise talks about how the cops are bad. That is 
something synonymous with NWA is this idea that cops are not good. Um, they are directly airing their grievances against uh, Daryl Gates's police method, the idea that you know you're being overly violent, they're racist, this sort of idea. Uh, when the group came out, they were almost immediately decried as being overly violent. They get the parental advisory sticker instantaneously. Uh, all the, the parental right groups really get, go up in arms against them. We'll talk about that more next class when we get into East Coast, West Coast. Uh, gangster rap is too big of a topic to cover under one thing. But what's interesting about NWA is just as soon as they get big, they fall apart. Uh, Ice Cube leaves in 1989. In 1989, Ice Cube leaves the group uh, mainly because of royalties issues. Uh, primarily, Easy E and Heller were keeping most of the money. They were keeping most of the money. Uh, when Ice Cube leaves the group, that starts a feud between uh, Ice Cube and pretty much Easy E and the other members of NWA. Uh, Ice Cube is called Benedict Arnold for the longest time by Easy E. Uh, this this whole mindset keeps going on for a while. Uh, Ice Cube starts putting out rec records, um, you know, that, that start dissing NWA. NWA starts dissing them as well. Uh, Dr. Dre ultimately leaves a group in the early 90s, about 91, 92. Uh, Ice Cube leaves. Ice Cube leaves a group. We're going to talk about what happens to Ice Cube next class because it's a very important thing. The thing I do want you to talk about, though, is um, what Ice-T later does. Ice-T. Now, Ice-T is primarily a rapper. Um, he does start getting into metal. He does start getting into metal music, heavy metal music, uh, has an album and slash group that he calls Body Count. Even though it's primarily a rapper, he does this whole thing. I don't think we're actually ever going to have a class that talks about the whole rap, heavy metal genre, ra hybrids you have for a while, with groups like, like Limp Biscuit or whatever. Uh, Body Count is one of them. Uh, Body Count is Ice Cube's band, theoretically. Uh, comes out with, in 1992 with an album that's also called Body Count, so it's the name of the band. The song Cop Killer, however, is very, very, very controversial. This is actually the most controversial of all the songs, because although he talks about uh, earlier gangster rap songs talk bad about cops, this one's explicit. It's literally called Cop Killer. Uh, basically, he's talking about how the cops are awful. It's done in a metal style. He's kind of rapping, but he's kind of singing. Uh... Theoretically done, uh, it's, it's an homage to the old Talking Heads record, um, Psycho Killer. He performs it a couple times. Uh, he does it at Lollapalooza, which is theoretically a rock music uh, festival. It's very controversial, mainly because he's talking about, um, you know, killing cops. That's the name of the song. Um, Tipper Gore's whole thing, she, she came out against it. Uh, President Bush came out against it. Several law enforcement agencies come out against it. Um, it's the idea that, you know, he's making money off of this. Uh, a lot of police unions come out against it. There are some defenses of the song because of, um, you know, free speech issues. Uh, still, this is viewed as the most violent, most offensive, worst of all the songs. I mean, Cop Killer becomes the poster child for worst rap song. Uh, and it's not even really a rap song, which is, which is problematic. It's because Ice Cube is a black man who, uh, sorry, Ice-T is a black man who's a rapper talking about all this. 
this is the most controversial song. But it's funny because the next year, the riots happen. In 1992, we're going full circle hill, the riots happen, and now they're all seen as prophetic. No cops were killed in the riots. You know, No cops were killed in the Los Angeles riots. No cops were even targeted in the Los Angeles riots. But the resentment was there. The resentment was bubbling up, and it shows that maybe things aren't necessarily great in the United States. But it also shows that this music is deemed as dangerous. Not just the gangster rap, but also things like Two Live Crew. You know, you have this idea that maybe rap is nice and gentle, but then again, it's not so good. Now, what ultimately happens to NWA, ironically, pretty much as big as I come, as big as I get up, they fall apart. Uh, even after Ice Cube leaves, Dr. Dre leaves after a while, Easy E kind of holds it together. Uh, Easy E actually dies of complications of HIV and AIDS in 95. But by the time he dies, it, it's almost like rap music has passed him by. It's almost even though gangster rap has passed him by. Because this was an opening salvo. Gangster rap has got to get a lot bigger. Now, even though NWA is a very important group that really influences a lot of other groups, other groups are going to become even bigger. Particularly the Coastal Wars. Because after Dr. Dre leaves NWA, he has to find another place to go. And where he goes is where we're going to talk about next time. But what I want you to think about, and I know this is a bit smaller, um, I could have made this one big long lecture with the East Coast, West Coast Wars, but I figured that, that warranted a separate one. This is a little bit shorter than normal. What I want you to think about, I want you to think about censorship, but also think about police brutality. Think about issues about you know African Americans and policing, and how that seems to be an evergreen topic. I mean, we're in a moment right now in 2020 where there are protests going on for issues of police brutality. Um, just talk about aspects of that. You know, is talking about you know issues in a song like Cop Killer. You know, is is saying you're going to do something in the song just as bad as doing it in person? Likewise, can you encourage? And for that, this is Dr. Telly for History 304, finishing up Gangster Rap.